We've all heard of women's intuition, right? Well, men have intuition as well. Intuition is so important when it comes to feeding ourselves and our families in our challenging food environment. This podcast explores a variety of topics related to a powerful, evidence-based eating framework called intuitive eating that integrates instinct, emotion, and rational thought. My hope is that it will help you finally break free of the perpetual diet cycle. This is the Men's Intuition Podcast. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Men's Intuition Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jeff Ash, and today I have a special guest with me, so I'm excited to have Vanessa Preston on. And Vanessa is a mental health social worker, psychotherapist, and nutritionist, all of those things all in one person in (laughs) Australia. She is originally from Kentucky, though, so she has provided assessment and therapy services for 14 years and specializes in treating post-traumatic stress disorder and complex trauma. Vanessa is the creator of the Body and Food Freedom Program and the host of the Body and Food Freedom Podcast, where she supports women to make peace with food and their bodies. Vanessa's group program focuses on self-compassion, shame resiliency, body image healing, and intuitive eating. So all of that rolled into one. So I'm excited to have Vanessa on today. So uh, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think this is an important conversation to have. And I think it's something that often gets completely overlooked in the context of eating, nutrition, our relationship with food. I think it's really easy for people to get focused on the physical aspects of health and yeah. and just overlook the the dramatic impact that our mental health plays. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of the more beautiful parts of intuitive eating, right? Is that like holistic view of health, um, not kind of forgetting about our spiritual, emotional, mental, social health. Um, where, yeah, you're right. I think we can hone in on the physical aspect a bit too much. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work beyond kind of the intro there. And I'm, I'm personally kind of interested in how you ended up in Australia since you're from Kentucky originally. Yeah, so I've, I've been in Australia now in Melbourne for uh, 12 or 13 years. Um, I had originally come over with my partner at the time. And it was meant to be this like short term adventure of working here and traveling here, saving money and then going back to Kentucky. And I just fell in love with the country and the culture. And um, and so it's kind of a little bit of a heartbreaking story that ended beautifully. But he ended up going back to Kentucky and I stayed and like I'm married and so happy here and he's married with little kids in Kentucky and um it's just one mm-hmm. of those things but that's what brought me here but my heart just made me stay yeah and um I do love it here like I could go on about it but I I we kind of live in just a smaller place outside of the city near the coast um so we do lots oh, okay. of hiking and camping and um I really enjoy stand-up paddleboarding, just being outside. Um, And yeah, I have a daughter who turns 20 this year, this month. Um, Oh my God. Yeah. No, next month, June. And I so obviously I had her at quite a young age. So that's like a whole other adventure in my life (laughs) that I could talk about. Um, Yeah. And, and yeah, like you said, I've worked as a therapist for 14 years and 
I've worked with children, adolescents, adults. Um, I've worked with men and women. So I love what I do. And, you know, part of my own lived experience is what pulled my heart into the, the more kind of nutrition, body image, intuitive eating space. So I struggled with chronic dieting and an eating disorder for a number of years. And so healing from that paired with my clinical experience um, is kind of what has me doing the work I'm doing now. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's not an uncommon kind of uh, story for people to get into, <laughs> into uh, the intuitive eating space. Oh yeah. That, yeah. 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 Well, it's uncommon for them to <laughs> go to Australia from Kentucky and <laughs> yeah. then end up staying. Yeah. That <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but the, the whole uh, intuitive eating thing coming out of that, that, uh, you know, that, that disordered eating mm. background. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, since we're going to be talking about trauma and kind of how it can impact our relationship with food and our bodies, it definitely makes sense then to start off by explaining what we mean by trauma, because I think um, you know many people misunderstand what it is and kind of what it constitutes, you know, like what constitutes trauma. So, you know, personally, I experienced 15 years of trauma mm -hmm. in my first marriage in the form of kind of really extreme over the top verbal and emotional abuse, mm -hmm. but it took me quite a while after my wife had passed away to really acknowledge and, and understand what had actually happened to me. Uh, so, so, uh, you know, it, like at the time I didn't even think that I had been traumatized. I, I just, you know, I was just kind of glad to be able to move on, but, but then after doing some work, then I realized, yeah, it was very traumatic. And and now I'm dealing with kind of the aftermath and work, you know, been working through that yeah. over that time period. Um, so what is trauma mm -hmm. and what are some common examples of trauma that maybe, maybe people don't immediately realize is actually trauma? Yeah. I mean, well, thank you for sharing that experience because I think we do need to have more men who are opening up at least with each other or in some safe space about experiences like you just said. Um, <clears throat> that's a, absolutely an example of trauma, you know, intimate partner violence. And I think people have this misconception that it has to include physical abuse and it doesn't. It can be this more kind of emotional, verbal, ongoing dynamic that's set up that absolutely impacts our physical bodies, our mental health, and the way we feel about ourselves. And, you know, some other examples, like I tend to find um, that people think when, when I say PTSD or trauma, that we're talking about kind of military members, maybe returning from, from war and coming back with really classic PTSD uh, symptoms, flashbacks, intrusive memories. And that's absolutely valid. Um, we're, we're contracted here to work with, uh, they're called open arms. And so it's a government funded counseling service for veterans and their families and current serving military members. So it's absolutely valid, but it tends to be the thing that people think of with PTSD or trauma, where really there's all these experiences that can lead to trauma, which is really how does it get stored in our nervous system? How does it impact our relationships and our mental health? And so examples of that, you know, is growing up in an environment where there was any sort of physical, emotional or verbal abuse from our caregivers absolutely can create a legacy of trauma in our lives without us even knowing. Um, and 
another kind of example is a growing up with a caregiver who just lacks capacity. And I, I like to say, cause when my clients come in and start talking about usually mom or dad, they, they often feel guilty or they feel like they have to defend their parents. And I say, look, we can hold that your parents are these complex humans who hopefully were trying their best at the time. And so I'm not placing any judgment on any human when I describe this. But, you know, if we have a parent who has a substance abuse problem or who might have mental health or mental illness themselves, and they're just unable to really come to the party the way we need them to, um, that can certainly be a trauma. Um, Something I say to my clients is trauma can also be the absence of something. What's tricky is the presence of something we can define a little bit more. So we can go, oh, well, my my mom or dad was abusive or um, my partner was emotionally abusive. But neglect is a, is, is a very real trauma of we did not get our emotional needs met or physical needs met the way that we mm-hmm. so desperately need as children. Um, some stuff that you probably end up talking about too, is things like weight stigma, certainly a trauma, um, chronic illness, car accidents, uh, bullying, you know, and whether we're talking about growing up and being bullied in school or having bullying happen in the workplace. Um, and so there's all these things that can lead to trauma that something I find people do is they compare it. So even when I see people one-on-one, they'll say, oh, but I bet you, I bet you've heard worse. Like, I bet you see people who've been through way, way more terrible things than me. And what I encourage people to do is to honor their subjective experience. If it Mm -hmm. impacted you and it was hurtful or painful, that's important to acknowledge without comparing to other people. And one of the things you know, I've said a couple of times is trauma is really the way it gets stored in the nervous system. And so people can be exposed to a really distressing event without developing PTSD, right? But when I say the way it's stored in the nervous system, there's a few key changes that happen in the brain and the body. And I won't go too deep into this because I find that even with my clients, like we reach a point and then we glaze over, but I'm going to give just like the, the, <laughs> yeah. the hot kind of topics of one is the amygdala. So this is the little almond shaped partner brain that activates our fight or flight or freeze response. I compare it to a smoke detector. Because it's really important, just like a smoke detector lets us know that there's fire and we need to get out to safety, um, the amygdala does that too. But with trauma, it gets overactivated. So it can kind of be firing, going like, oh, there's danger, there's threat, and really, there's not. Um, Then other kind of key players Mm -hmm. are cortex that helps um, with planning, with executive functioning, with thinking kind of rationally. That can be suppressed. And the other kind of key player is called our hippocampus, which is the part of our brain. It's like a clock or a calendar. It helps us kind of time orient. Um, That can actually shrink. And so this is why it can become a little bit difficult for some people with trauma to know the trauma is actually over now. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure you see this too in your practice. But the other thing I say is, trauma can leave us 
feeling a deep mistrust in other people or ourselves um, and really cause havoc on the body Mm -hmm. because of that overactivation of the stress response. It can be things like headaches, muscle tension, digestive issues, um, anxiety, depression. So there's this whole kind of ripple effect and legacy of trauma. And what I find is people can be experiencing that without actually knowing that's what it is. Um, and because I just took like five minutes with that answer, I do like to say there is good news. So the good news is our brain does have the ability to change and adapt and heal, um, through neuroplasticity. But the other thing is probably the most healing thing for trauma is safe relationships. I think that's amazing. Like that, that relationally we can heal that, um, so I hope I didn't take too long to answer that, but those are some, that's what comes to my head when I hear trauma. Yeah, no, that was a, that was a fantastic explanation of, um, and exactly what I was hoping that you would explain is that, that understanding of what it is. Cause I think so many people, that comparison thing, mm-hmm. I think is something that's really common where you think, well, my trauma okay, maybe it's traumatic, but it's not as bad as that other person. So I shouldn't be struggling like I am because that other person isn't struggling as bad as I am. Um, But, you know, when you really start to look at it, it, there's so many factors that come into play where, um, you know, for example, I grew up the first 24 years of my life. I had amazing, loving, supporting parents, Mm -hmm. like the picture-perfect parents, if you can imagine such a thing. And so that's how I grew up. And that's how my young infant brain, toddler brain, young child brain was nurtured. And all the, all those wires were, you know, all the wiring in my brain was, was done at that early age. And so when the traumatic experience happened, it certainly changed me and certainly had a very powerful impact, but it was it's been different than, say, my kids who went through that same verbal abuse, actually at a probably at a much deeper level in many ways because of the nature of it. Um, and so it's impacted them quite differently now that they're adults than it did me. Again, you know, I, I can't compare myself to my kids and say, oh, well, you know, I had I, I didn't have to go through it as a child, so I shouldn't be struggling in this area. Yeah. Likewise, you know, comparing it to the trauma that that my wife experienced when she was a child and yeah. and looking at that and and even two people who've experienced the same r- relatively the same kind of trauma at the same age and comparing that way is not helpful either, you know. You have people who've been through child sexual sexual trauma a, a, as children and you look at the way that it impacts one where maybe they have had uh, they've been closed off to sexual intimacy and on the other hand the other one is just basically giving themselves away to every person that they come in contact with and they both experience very similar things but it manifests itself differently yeah and likewise some people it manifests itself in a relationship with food and an, and an issue like that and and is, and and body and so I'm glad you mentioned that comparison thing because I think that's a really important aspect of it. Yeah. I mean, people will share with me, you know, for example, the going through their parents' divorce and it was very painful and really changed the, the, like they had to go through this grieving process, this whole kind of 
shift around their sense of safety, stability, predictability. And, and yeah, th- that comparison thing almost always comes up. One of my um, good friends who's a therapist, she says, girl, this is not the trauma Olympics. <laughs> so she will say, I love that. we do not compare. So it's very much like if we have a listener, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about in preparation for this is it's called the um, adverse childhood experiences. So it's called ACE and it's, it is available online for free and it can kind of walk you through things that could be impacting you. Like you said, everyone's so different. Um, but it will walk you through and it can be interesting to do that. The only thing that I caution with that is it, it really doesn't take into account like what you were talking about with your history. You grew up in a safe, stable, loving mm-hmm. home, um, which builds resilience in your ner- resilience in your nervous system and, and everywhere. And, and so just be mindful if you jump on and look at the ACE that y- it doesn't tell the full story. Um, yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And that resiliency you mentioned, I think is something that people can very easily, um, not factor in because I would say that the, the trauma that I experienced because of the resiliency that I developed through a strong upbringing into adulthood and, you know, into basically a strong upbringing and strong loving environment all the way to full maturity of my brain. my resiliency, you know, I went through, uh, I uh, got some counseling after my first wife passed away, worked through that. And it was, it was six weeks of counseling. And my counselor said that he was confident that, that I could kind of continue going on and, and deal with things on my own through normal relationships. Yeah. And that, that was not, that's not the case for, for my kids, as an example, you know, that they, they will probably have ongoing need of support in that area. Not that I don't still need that, but I can typically deal with yeah. my issues by having a conversation with my wife yeah. or my mom yeah. or some or a friend or something like that. Yeah. And so I think that is important to understand that and and also the, the factors of what your support system looks like and what your environment at home looks like and yeah. your your job and all of those things. Yeah, and this is why I think a person-centered approach is best because we really hone in on this the person and um exactly what you said kind of a real full picture of how is this impacting them what supports do they have available what does kind of their day-to-day look like um so kind of never making assumptions about someone's experience and you know with your children i think it is worth noting that there is something trauma can also happen in witnessing something so Mm -hmm. if we if we witness um as children our parents fighting or kind of a chaotic environment or verbal abuse witnessing that is is enough to create some trauma in our bodies um yeah 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 yeah, well, you know, we often hear about men being less inclined to express hurts and emotional struggles. I know that was me personally, you know, when when at the time that my first wife passed away, my my uh attitude toward mental illness, at depression, anxiety was that you know, just kind of stop doing that. Just stop feeling <laughs> yeah. that way. Just you snap know, out like, of it. Uh, it. It was it was a very ignorant and yeah yeah it's like okay 
just let's talk this out and then let's move on. And yeah, it was, it was a huge slap in the face when I, you know, was actually confronted with having to deal with that because in many ways that traumatic, the, the, that, in that first marriage, the, the trauma was so bad that I tuned out in many ways and just basically shut down everything. And when it was gone, and I mean, I would find myself like, totally losing it and bawling watching like a a cartoon where characters interacted in a certain way that my kids were watching (laughs) and and I would see this like this little relationship thing going and it just like moved me so deeply and yeah yeah there were just a a number of ways that thing small little things uh, (laughs) hit me but anyway coming back to my question for you (laughs) we often hear about men kind of really being less inclined to express hurts and and emotional struggles and uh, is there truth to this generalization and, and does trauma tend to affect men and women differently in your experience? Well, I really thought about that because in preparation for this and I actually don't think like I think trauma impacts humans full stop in like we said, and it can look different, I think, for everybody with some commonalities. But I certainly see so I work with a lot of men, actually, and I see uh, that it, it they we have we do have a culture and society and system in place that really shames men around expressing their emotions and i certainly do see that and so i think when we talk about trauma healing or recovery or um trying to kind of improve our mental health this is often a roadblock for men of they have grown up whether they heard it in their family or not they've heard it at school they've heard it through kind of cultural messages that man up, suck it up, mm-hmm. don't be a wimp or other choice words, right? And so they're shamed from quite often from quite an early age around sharing how they're feeling. And so and I, I can't remember if I just said this, but also men will say they don't want to be perceived as weak. Um mm-hmm. so the idea of opening up to a therapist or to their partner or to their mate is foreign because of that i think too there's this stigma then too of not just stigma around expressing emotion but stigma and help seeking behavior so um i think for men to to get to a point of reaching out to professional support especially it can take a lot more almost hitting a version of rock bottom in some way where they're like okay (laughs) nothing to lose trying this yeah, 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 I would agree. I mean, I think, you know, my experience in in myself early on was that I I didn't want to to talk about that stuff going on, yeah. and that certainly wasn't what was modeled to me. Which I think was why after my first wife passed away and I was out of that situation, that I was. It's kind of funny because I almost went to the other extreme. So while I was wrapped up in that situation, I never talked to anybody about it. My parents didn't even know how extreme the abuse was and we saw them three or four days a week and often stayed with them over the entire weekend. So they knew there were issues. They knew that, you know, my wife was a, a bit harsh and that kind of thing, but they didn't know the full extent of it. And, um, and so, you know, I kind of went to the other extreme at the, once I was out of that and basically just this complete open both tell everybody everything. Um, yeah. but yeah, so I can, um, but, but with my other male friends and other, men that I've worked with, it can definitely be really difficult for them to open up about that because yeah, the culture, like you talked about, 
Yeah. And something I have to say, because because it's come into my head a couple of times, but part of coping with trauma or distressing events in our lives is, is, and our nervous system is wired to do this, to survive, we can shut down and kind of disconnect from what's going on. Um, and we can normalize it. And so only after when we are really in a safer environment, will things come up. So I, earlier in my career, I worked with a lot more children and children in pretty unsafe situations. And sometimes who would end up in foster care and, and it, people would expect, oh, the child's been removed from this unsafe environment and now they're with this really lovely, caring foster care carer. And it's going, no, now it starts because they, they've they kind of reached this, they're in the safe environment. Now things can come up. So it's kind of what you're describing after your um, first wife died of then it's like, oh, this kind of realization, it sounds like, that was not okay. That actually falls into this category of abuse. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so coping with men and women can be this kind of dissociation that disconnect from our bodies or our environment or the other side getting hypervigilant anxiety kind of can't slow down. This is where we see people overworking. I see this mm-hmm. a lot. Actually, I would say a lot more with men in my clinical practice of um, work overworking um, or over-exercising. It's these ways of coping that are kind of more accepted by society. Um, but the other thing I was thinking about, what do I see men do? I see them brush off their emotional experience, how they're feeling because there's no immediate solution. (laughs) And so I think men are taught, like, we need you to be like the knight in shining armor. And we just want you to solve the thing immediately. And, there's value in that, but but it can also kind of hinder people because it's like, well, I don't want to sit with how I feel. I just want to like hurry up and solve it. And if I can't, then I'm going to suppress this or avoid it and, and move on, um, which causes lots of mm-hmm. stress and tension in our bodies. Yeah, well, it can it definitely causes problems in relationships, in too, relationships, I think, because yes. um, as an example, you know, I think I. Yeah, I mean, I think the, when we talked the last time when I was on your podcast, I mentioned my wife's ongoing um, health issues and chronic health problems and that kind of thing. And one of the things that that over the course of that time, you know, I've always tried to be the one to not um, express any issues or problems so that I didn't heap any more stress onto her because she's already dealing with her her issues. And I've found myself, and we've had conversations about this um, over the years, and I, I find myself sometimes not expressing my needs or my feelings mm. um, because I'm afraid of it adding to what she's already dealing with. And so I'm trying to be that stronger person, but it actually backfires because then I'm holding back things that are building up in me that I'm not expressing to her until it becomes a really big issue. And so I don't even give her the opportunity to be there for me, to be that supportive partner, to to uh, make the changes. If it's a change, you know, if it's something that she's doing that's impacting me in a certain way and, and vice versa, you know, she has to make sure she lets me know if there's something I need to do as well. But 
I think that that's one of the things that I think a lot of men are are very susceptible to is that is that we if we don't express it, it's just going we're not we're not trusting our partner to be able to handle it. And I don't think that's fair for them. Yeah. And it does kind of rob a, a quality of the connection. Um, so sometimes people, like I said, they think what needs to happen is the problem solving part, whereas really what needs to happen is the connection part. And you kind of sit in the crap together mm-hmm. for a minute. Um, you said something and I lost my train of thought, but it was it was when it comes to relationships. Oh, maybe it will come back to me. Yeah, it's gone. But it was very much in this realm of <laughs> hate when that happens on a podcast, yeah. especially. <laughs> um, I know. Well, if it comes up, feel free to jump in and just yeah, say, oh, I will. that thought I had. I will. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Yeah, I'm perfectly fine with an interruption. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I, I think you're really fantastic and somewhat of a unique blend of of psychotherapist and nutritionist and which means you can do and, and and work with people and their mental health struggles as well as issues related to their eating, which I think is really cool. And um, so trauma uh, may be directly related to nutrition like past or, or current food insecurity and eating disorder, et cetera, those kinds of things. Um, however, does, does trauma impact our eating habits and behaviors even when the traumatic experience has nothing to do with food directly? Yes. And it came back into my head. So I was going to say before I answer this question is, and you tell me if you can relate to this or if you see this with your clients, but um, what what we risk is if we're not expressing how we're feeling somewhere, especially with our partner, if that's safe to do so, is I think men are taught by society that anger is the only appropriate emotion to show. And so that's sometimes what I see in my work is there's this lovely guy who's sitting with lots of sadness or pain, not knowing how to express it. And it comes out as anger. And so there's this old, I don't know who said it, but quote of anger is sad's bodyguard. There's also a really helpful uh, Mm. graphic that's like an iceberg and above the water is anger. And then below it is sadness and shame and disappointment and confusion and fear and anxiety. And so, you know, the more I think we can practice communicating kind of what sits under that, the less likely we are to kind of lose it with our partners or with our children. Um, So that's what I see come up in relationships a lot is kind of one partner going, but he's angry all the time. And I'm going, oh, he's just really hurt and he doesn't know how to express it, you know? So I just wanted to add that in. Yeah, that makes (laughs) a lot of sense. Do you see that, the anger thing? Yes, I'm I'm glad you did because, yeah, I mean, I've seen it with with a lot of of men in general. Um, That usually doesn't come out in... Um, in my coaching relationships with them, but I've seen it just in, in my work with men in other contexts and, and just in hanging out with friends and, and just watching, watching how, how men respond to that. You know, when you have a man with anger issues, there's probably something much, much deeper down that's Mm -hmm. actually driving that. It's not just that they're an angry, violent person. And I mean, that may be the case, but, but in general, there's, there's probably something that really hurt them yeah. at some point and that they are not feeling safe and able to express. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so in terms of kind of trauma impacting food behaviors, this is where I'm going to cheat and look at my notes because I, f- I feel like I could 
talk for like two hours and you're like, Vanessa, wrap up. But oh yeah, the first thing I like to say <laughs> is, yes, trauma absolutely impacts our food behaviors. And even when we're not going, this specific traumatic event is what's causing it. It's, it's rarely that black and white. Um, right. But one thing I like to say is this is true for all body sizes. There's this really dangerous misconception that, you know, people in larger bodies are walking around with unresolved trauma and low vibration and all of this kind of stuff. There is nothing at all that suggests that to be true in actual non-biased research. So when I talk about these, this is all body sizes, um, this eating disorders, that's one thing I see come up and eating disorders impact lots of people, not just this stereotypical thin white teenage girl standing in front of the mirror. It actually impacts all genders across different races, different body sizes. Um, but one thing I think you brought up pre our interview, but is food scarcity. Food scarcity suggests potentially some poverty or neglect. And so that's a trauma that definitely impacts uh, food behaviors, even if you it was only when you were a child and now you're an adult. It can still be having some impact in driving some of the food behaviors, whether it's binge eating or um, emotional eating or just eating past fullness or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so kind of any trauma, I think we can use dieting eating disorders to try to cope with part of that I think is it gives us this perceived control um it can offer a way to be distracted it can offer a way to to avoid certain things um it can help mm -hmm. us calm down that's something else I was thinking about is depending on what's gone on for you in your life food might actually be the only safe source of happiness right so People can really engage in this. Um, it's a way of meeting a need. This is why in the work, it's so important to be curious of what need is some of my food behavior serving and how can I meet that need in another way, not shame it and say it's bad and just try to quit doing it. Um, usually not as successful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. The last one that came to my head with food behaviors is Trauma has a way of disconnecting us from our bodies, as does anxiety and the stress of modern life. And so we can kind of be walking around, you know, above our necks, like neck up of kind of in our heads all the time, not connected to our bodies, what we're feeling, how hungry we are, how full we are. Often people don't even know when I say what satisfies you, what sounds good. They don't know. They don't know. So I think that's another way that it can impact our food behavior is we don't even know what's happening with our bodies when we're eating, um, much less kind of mindfulness that we teach. You know, like, um, yeah, yeah. What did, what did you think when you had that question of like, what do you see food behavior wise? Yeah, well, that's that's the thing is with with that, um, you know, with with food behavior it does it goes back to those those different experiences that we've had and and like you were saying it can often be when it's a problem is when it's the primary coping mechanism for dealing with these things yeah. and 
And um, that curiosity that you mentioned is one of the things that I, when I started learning about intuitive eating and going through the principles that really stood out to me, it was like, this is, this is what's missing from approaches that so many people are trying to use to, to deal with their, their relationship with food. So, you know, a person is struggling with binge eating and, and feeling out of control in their eating and they, you know, they, they're obsessed with sweets or whatever the case is. And so they think, oh, I need to just stop emotional eating. And, and even, you know, well-meaning coaches will tell them, oh yeah, well, let's, let's, we need to stop your emotional eating. Let's find distractions, you know, brush your teeth instead. Uh, um, and when, you know, that signifies that you're done or fill yourself up with water or go for a walk or whatever, but they never actually help them to understand, well, there's something here that this need that needs to be met and you're, you're trying to meet it with something that's never going to meet the need. Mm. Let's, you know, let's just see what, what, uh, what that may be. And I, I know that since you're a psychotherapist, you can dig deeper in, in that way than, you know, someone like myself, who I, I, I have to be careful not to cross lines from, from intuitive eating coaching and, yeah. and that kind of thing into psychotherapy. Cause, um, cause that can be a dangerous road to go down. But, uh, that's one of the things I love about that, that principle of intuitive eating, coping with your emotions with kindness. And they used to say coping with your emotions without food. And I think those two together is is a good way of thinking about it. Coping with your emotions without using food all the time, yeah. but you can't just yank it out. You know, like like you had mentioned, um, you know, just trying to stop it cold turkey. Because if that's your coping mechanism, you've got to put something else in there. And I think that's where so much value comes in and going in in that you know, seeking out therapy and help and whatever context, whether that's professionally or just really expressing yourself to your partner or to a trusted friend or or whatever the case may be to really find ways to cope with that so that then you don't always have to use food and you can gradually shift to coping with your emotions with things that will help you actually deal with it instead of just mask it. Yeah. I think, I think it was my previous mentor, but she said, um, something about emotional eating is actually really valuable because it can elevate the conversation away from food and to what you're needing, like we're talking about. So staying curious about, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that I used to do that I don't do anymore is on the way home from work, you know, as I mentioned, I work with, worked a lot more with children and really just heartbreaking situations and clients who are dealing with some, you know, just stuff. And when I would leave my body, like I would feel so kind of, I had, I think I had absorbed so much of that, that I was taking aspects of it home with me. And so it turned into these binges on the way home where it would be like, I'm going to hit up the the petrol stations. I'm going to get this and that. And, and it would just be this way of trying to soothe myself emotionally, trying to calm my nervous system from kind of how heightened it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if someone had said to me, just drink water, you know, that's kind of a band-aid on, and, and that doesn't even to yeah. me take therapy. It just takes the curiosity of what is happening for me in this moment and how mm-hmm. can I get creative and meet the need in a way that feels healthier um and and healthier mind body kind of soul yeah. soul level 
um, not diet culture healthier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's so important. And that's, and that, yeah, that's just a matter of asking questions, simple yeah. questions sometimes like, what do you, what are you feeling at that time? You know, when you're, when you're having those binges and again, that's where it's nice that I don't have to cross that line into therapy because <laughs> if they do need some more, I can recommend that they talk to somebody, yeah. but often it isn't this deep, dark, yeah. heavy, heavy thing. It's sometimes it's just that they're lonely um, and, you know, and, and they recognize, or they're tired, they're mentally tired and, and, and just recognizing, oh, I'm just mentally drained from, yes, I went through some trauma in my past. That's not super important as far as the details of it. That impacts my, my mental capacity. But ultimately, you know, I just finished a 12 hour day. I didn't get a break over the weekend and that's why I was so stressed. And so just that, that simple curiosity of figuring out what was it? And then you can identify those things and really yeah, find better ways of coping. Yeah. And you said the word loneliness. That is, if if I put on my psychotherapy hat and track all the way back to childhood and dig up some stuff, often it's the emotion that can be triggering of loneliness or loneliness is a huge one or boredom mm-hmm. um, or anxiety. And so it is this is why what we were talking about earlier of kind of just getting in this habit of being curious and checking in, what am I feeling and what am I needing? Mm-hmm. And something I want to say, cause we are talking about trauma is it's kind of a buzzword trauma, um, especially on social media. I, I don't know if that's just my algorithms or, or but I, I want to <laughs> clarify for people listening. It's even staying curious about, how certain things are impacting you, but you don't have to go on kind of a witch hunt of like digging, 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 digging into things. Your mind and body will usually reveal what it needs to when it's time. So if it's okay to go back to your own experience of after your first wife died, it sounds like your mind and body were going, this is what this is what we need to deal with that whole like mental health and just snap out of it is not working and so i don't i would hate for someone to listen and think we always have to dig you do you get what i'm saying it's kind of we can actually yeah. trauma work isn't always digging into the memory in fact most of the time it's not that it's what we're talking about how do i feel what do i notice in my body can yeah. i be curious can i be compassionate what what's this pattern with food really about um so yeah it's not always mm-hmm. kind of that yeah does that make sense when i say that yeah i think that's a, no it it absolutely does and i think it is it's really easy when you're talking about those things to to be misunderstood that it's digging super deep and dealing with it and tr- and pulling up all those deep dark memories from the past mm-hmm. and and they, there may be times when you do that with yeah. with your in, in your work. But when it comes to our relationship with food and, and stuff, often we don't need to, to do that. And, and, you know, when, when I'm working with clients and, and something comes up trauma related, uh, I certainly don't d- try and explore that deeper yeah, with yeah. them because that's not, yeah. it, that's not my place, but it's also may not even really be necessary or helpful in that situation. Yeah. It's just simply identifying that there's something that's bringing up this memory and then uh, helping them to find ways that they can better cope yeah. with it, like you were talking about there. Yeah. 
And I think the yeah, in well, terms, how does dieting negatively? Oh, go ahead. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is um, we were on the same page there because I was thinking of another food behavior and pattern is dieting, and like I I think maybe this is a bold statement. I think dieting is always a in almost all situations a way of coping with something deeper um because when we're dieting like i said it can give us this false sense of control um it can give us something else to focus on so it's kind of going that whole emotion stuff that you're talking about or reconnecting with my partner or repairing things with my children, mm -mm, hard, scary basket. So I'm going to fill my time with over-exercising and manipulating my body and obsessing about what I'm eating and tracking macros or calories or whatever that looks like for the person. So one of my favorite mantras is understand what it's holding together before we undo it. So for someone listening going, well, what is this dieting thing actually doing for me? Um, like, how is it kind of mm -hmm. helpful? Because we need to understand what need it's serving before we undo it, you know? And, but then it's usually there's some harm yeah. being done. Like the loop of dieting. And I think you mentioned this. I don't know if it was one of your other episodes I listened to, but I think you mentioned experiencing similar when you were really cutting and training hard but with dieting we can't sustain it me and you know that we can sustain it short term for most people maybe we have that like unicorn who can just do it but um it usually we do it short term we usually end up kind of falling off the wagon so to speak or eating the quote bad food or cheating on the weekend or you know kind of falling off the wagon, whatever that looks like. And sometimes there's that guilt and shame that kicks in of like, what's wrong with me? Why don't I have more discipline? Why don't I have more willpower? And then we go like, now we're starting again, those Monday moments of it's Monday, I'm going to restart this and do my, you know, going to kill, do this. And in that loop, what's happening so often under it is we are stuck in this loop where we are reinforcing problematic core beliefs about ourselves, And I don't think people are necessarily always aware of it. But when I dig that layer deeper, it's usually core beliefs of I'm not good enough. I'm unlovable. I'm worthless. And it can take people a little bit of time to actually see that. But so it's this you know, on the diet, I failed. I'm going to jump back on. And every time we hit that fail, it, it mm -hmm. reinstalls these core beliefs that were potentially, do you get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's this like dangerous kind of loop. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because that, that explains why we keep going back to that dieting. We're trying to, trying to meet that need, trying to fix, resolve that issue that we're struggling with. But then the dieting reinforces those beliefs and it's those beliefs that drive us to want to diet and then the diet reinforces them and it's just this cycle this cycle and you can see why people are constantly on and off and um you know it reminds me of one of the things that's as common among men especially in lifting groups and you know i'm in a couple of fitness groups and you know one is 
is uh, it's called Bacon Bibles and Barbells. <laughs> it's basically power <laughs> lifters talking about their <laughs> eating you know, large pizzas awesome. and lifting enormous amounts of yeah, ridiculous <laughs> amounts of food, yeah. uh, r- ridiculous amounts of weight. And yeah, it's a really fun group. But but anyway, uh, it's, uh, it's a number of times it comes up pretty regularly. Every few months, somebody comments about how the gym is their therapy and lifting is their therapy and that kind of a thing. And, mm-hmm. and that, and it, it, it kind of makes me think of what you were talking about there where, you know, they know that there's something going on that they're trying to deal with and they're using this other thing and not that it can't be beneficial because it can, I mean, there's research showing that um, physical activity can be very beneficial to our uh, mental health and help with things like depression and things like that. So it's not that it's bad, but if you're, constantly turning to that to try and resolve problems that aren't related to that, um, then yeah, you can see how that, yeah, definitely exactly what you were saying. Yeah. There. That makes so much sense. My, my husband calls that the distractor. So you're kind of using mm-hmm. something more surfacey to distract from what maybe actually needs addressed. Um, often the distractor is what brings someone to therapy. And then we go that layer deeper of like, Oh, Mm-hmm. It's actually this thing that, that we need to work through. Um, yeah. Yeah. And something else I, when I think about this kind of dieting and trauma link is there is trauma in the body image space. And I think dieting can be a way of trying to cope with that, whether it's deep body shame or things like weight stigma, or if we've been taught which all of us have, I think men, women, whether it's taught in our families or just kind of this cultural environment is we're taught that our worth is in our bodies. So, you know, what we can, what, what our appearance is. Um, if we did grow mm-hmm. up in an environment where our parents were really critical or we were rewarded, we all are rewarded for this, but if we're rewarded for shrinking our bodies or for men getting like big and muscular and toned, um, yeah, then it can dieting can be this way of kind of pursuing a sense of belonging or a sense of acceptance or mm-hmm. a sense of connection. And depending on the person that can run all the way deep into our family of origin, or it can kind of be more, like I said, the systemic cultural thing of it gives a sense of belonging. Um, and and you said something too. Yeah. It's never, it's never black, it's never black and white. So when you were talking about those guys coming in in the gym and going, you know, this is my therapy, there's truth in that. That's gonna, that's gonna be helping process all kinds mm-hmm. of the connection with each other, the body movement. There's yeah. therapeutic things about that. Um, and mm-hmm. there can still be deeper issues being avoided. So it's rarely, rarely. Right. Something's good and bad, good or bad. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Cause I, I know there's been that, that, that physical activity, the gym, my, my exercise and workouts and stuff is, is one way that I, um, I think of self care for myself, yeah. you know, as I mentioned my, you know, with the, with the ongoing health issues and those kinds of things that gives me a chance to kind of go step away and just have time to myself. And so it can be very therapeutic in, in many ways, but you know, it's, yeah, I do have to be conscious of the fact that that's not going to resolve different things that I may be struggling with. It's one, it's one of those things, but again, it comes, comes back to the food thing. 
food, it's okay to use food as a coping mechanism. It's okay to use that to eat emotionally. And I think that's something that a lot of people, uh, unfortunately, I think it gets a bad rap. But eating for emotional reasons is okay. It's just if it's your only coping mechanism or, you know, if you say food's my therapy or the gym's my therapy or this, um, then, and, and if those are your primary coping mechanisms, that's when it's the, can become really problematic because yeah. there are other things that yeah, they don't, that doesn't address every need that you have. Yeah. And even when you were saying that, even the idea of like a curious reflection, I think reflective practice is one of the most helpful things. So taking a step back and if it's talking to a coach or a friend or just thinking about it in your own head, what is this thing helping me with? How is it maybe harming me? Like, how do I know I've moved into the territory of this being problematic? So, for example, emotional eating or training in the gym, fabulous coping mechanisms. How do you know in yourself when it's moved into problematic territory? Is it it's become obsessive? Is it because you're shaming yourself when you miss a session because you Mm -hmm. feel sick? Is it like, how do you know for yourself? when it's become problematic and then we hold both parts parts are helpful parts are problematic how else can we start meeting needs kind of a such a kind of cliche thing but like a toolbox of coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. of what else can we add not necessarily take away right yeah because when you start adding things that it naturally uh, adds in more balance to it you know if you start the food example, if you start eating more vegetables, you're probably going to naturally eat less of something else because otherwise you're going to just be stuffed all the time. Yeah. And so it's, it's not, it's, you know, it's not that you're trying to re- replace it. It's just, you're, you're adding in something that may be missing that may bring some benefit to you. And in the process, it, it adds that balance to everything else. Yeah. And you know, that example I shared, we're kind of driving home from work and binging. This was a slower process, but you know, now it's more of a process of, I always do a little bit of breathing before I leave the office. Um, I'll, I'll have something ready, like kombucha. I just really find it like Mm -hmm. good. It's like, um, what is it? It's kind of like has the bubbles. It has good flavor. It's easy to have ready. And I have a snack that I know is going to satisfy me. So I know the combination of sweet and salty. So I'm still Mm -hmm. using food but i'm using it in a way that feels kind of at a deeper level more helpful um yeah so yeah it's kind of like adding in these different um strategies yeah 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 that's great well it sounds like these are the kinds of things that you probably go over in your um body and food freedom program isn't it that you basically help your your group members kind of work through these different things and identify these different things and so that they can then cope better with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so we do the program that I do is 16 weeks and it goes through some of the body stuff we've talked about actually more the nervous system, but not in a jargony way, more in like a practical way. Um, Mm -hmm. Self-compassion, shame, resiliency, body image healing, and then the principles of intuitive eating that we both teach. And, um, yeah, yeah, it's funny because 
again, I think my mentor said this, but, you know, the relationship with food parallels the relationship we have with ourselves. And so if we think about food and it's obsessive, rigid, black and white, all or nothing, that stuff's usually showing up in our parenting, in our relationships, in the way we relate to ourselves, right? Um, so yeah. that's kind of, yeah, that's definitely some of the um, the stuff that I teach in my group work. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, yeah, and I, I just encourage any of you uh, listening you know, I obviously this is men's intuition podcast, yeah. <laughs> but I have a lot of female listeners and uh, and any guys listening. If you if you have a, a uh, woman in your life who you think might be able to benefit, um, where can people find you, find more information about you, follow your excellent content on social media, maybe even get involved in in your program for women? Um, yeah, so it's it's my Usually I'm when I'm online, it's Instagram. So it's Vanessa underscore Preston underscore. Um, I have a website, which is green life, like L I F E psychology.com. Um, you can jump on that and there's a body and food freedom page where you can learn about, you know, the podcast and my group. Um, I also have some exciting, like a new exciting freebie that it's not released yet, but I can't wait. And, um, a new offer that is accessible across the time zones and affordable. Um, So I have some new stuff coming out. Well, is that something you can share now or is it, is it still in the works? I've nerded out and I have this cool plan of like revealing it over a week. So, Oh, cool. So, all right. Jump on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, I was just about to say, go follow <laughs> Vanessa. She she puts out really, really practical, good oh, content on Instagram every day. And it's very easy to read. It's very easy to understand. It's applicable to men and women equally, I think. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just, it. I've learned definitely learned a lot from her, which is, of course, why I wanted to have her here well, on you. the podcast. So yeah. um, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk with us and share such fantastic information. I was thinking throughout this whole thing, I'm like, I'm going to go back and listen to this again (laughs) and probably several times. Uh, You know, I'm working on my own uh, group program for men and, and I'm, and in those lessons that we're going through, that we're going to be going through, I'm adding additional resources to kind of help in some of those areas. And this will definitely be, uh, they'll definitely be getting a link to this, uh, yeah, this that's podcast awesome. episode because I think you just provided some fantastic information. So thank you well, so thank much you for, for having me. Yeah, and I'll I'll put all the contact info in the show notes so anybody who has uh, been listening, you'll be able to get in contact with Vanessa if if you think she might be able to help you or if you're just wanting to continue learning more from uh, from from her as you go through this journey. So thank you again, everyone, for listening. I look forward to bringing you another episode soon and uh, hope you all have a wonderful day.